Now hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Benaian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Thank you very much. My name is Paul Ramsey. If I haven't met you yet, I'm just starting my timer here. There we go. It works really well. Really well. The timer, that is. Wonderful to be with you this morning. It is a joy and an honor to preach God's word every time I have the opportunity to do so. Um, I'm so glad that you're with us. If you're a guest with us, uh, whether you're joining us online or you're here in person, we're so glad that you're here. Hope that you feel welcome, uh, that you have felt the welcome of God through the welcome of this church. Um, We're glad that you're here. We look forward to hearing more about your story, sharing a little bit more about ours. um, And I look forward to meeting you if I haven't already. I just, uh, I'm about half a chapter away from finishing a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's a book written by uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. And uh, it's a really interesting book. They're not, um, it's not written from a Christian perspective. They're written, it's written mostly from a psychology kind of sociology perspective on the current moment. And one of the points they make, I think well, is that one of the great untruths in the world is that the world is us versus them. There are good people and there are bad people. There are people who are with you and people who are against you. The reason they call this one of the great untruths is that it's so regularly believed as true, but it also so regularly leads to division and violence. And if anything, the current cultural temperature affirms this impulse in us. The world is divided between us and them. To quote the rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, there is the moral dualism that sees good and evil as instincts within us between which we must choose. But there's also what I will call pathological dualism that sees humanity itself as radically divided into the unimpeachably good and the irredeemably bad. You are either one or the other. This is the great untruth that there is us versus them. There are good people and there are bad people. Uh, and between those two ways that I just quoted, the, the, the rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs is saying, um, of course, it's probably better to focus on the complex battle between good and evil that takes place within each person. That's probably better to see it as, but it is far easier to quickly gain an enthusiastic following based upon dividing the world into good people and bad people. And so that usually wins the day that kind of pathological dualism through which we see the world. Everything in our beings cries us versus them. But as we will see today in our passage, uh, this impulse is the impulse that the gospel was given to us by God to address. God, even today, works in the world and through relationships that go against our understanding of the world and our division of the world into us and them, as I think we'll see in our passage today. We're in the middle of a series walking through the book of Acts, and this series is focused on the mission of the church. 
as it's given in the book of Acts. We've looked at the commissioning of the apostles by Jesus. We've looked at the empowering of the church by the spirit. We've looked at the compassion and mercy of the ministry of the gospel. Last week, we looked at how God goes for the one and at how God is working in the world, preparing moments and conversations for us to step into. As we walk through a series in the book of Acts and think about what the mission of the church is, it's hard to come away from this story without a sense of excitement at what the Lord is doing and what the Lord might do. Acts is a wonderful book as a church to go back to, to consider what God is doing in the world. Throughout the book of Acts, we see God working to build his church. This is a new humanity, which enters the world as a small persecuted sect within Judaism, whose leader is executed for insurrection, that then somehow grows explosively at times, steadily at others, but gradually until it reaches the ends of the earth. Today, we see ourselves uh, at Sojourn very much seeking to join in what God is and has been doing in the world. We truly believe that the city of Houston will one day be a place where disconnected neighbors love one another like family, where the lonely and the outcasts have a place to belong, where segregated neighborhoods are united in mutual care and concern, where the poor and vulnerable are lifted and dignified through compassionate action, where the diverse peoples of the world live and flourish together in joy and harmony. We believe this, we yearn for this, we pray for this, we labor towards this. And to this end, Sojourn Houston, we're a part of a family of churches that aims to multiply, multiply local congregations who lead the way in hospitality and neighborly living, taking radical action on behalf of the marginalized, pursuing the unity of diverse peoples. As one church made up of many congregations, we at Sojourn are working together to see Houston saturated with redemptive presence. We seek the flourishing of our city and of all creation. As we say, this is a line from our website, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we will go where the kingdom is not and together we will stay there. Where there is darkness, where there's brokenness, where there's sin, poverty, corruption, or violence, we will abide. We will pray, sing, baptize, teach, welcome, give, feast, and serve until the kingdom comes in Houston as it is in heaven. In other words, as a church, we exist to join God in the renewal of the world around us by seeking to live as a reconciling community, reconciling one another to God and to each other. That is the kind of church that the Bible talks about. This is the kind of church that the world needs. And we also believe this is the kind of church that God is building us into by his grace. And so in line with this, we come to another passage in this series looking at the mission of the church that captures a few important aspects of the kind of church we ought to be as we seek to live life as a faithful presence in the world around us. And as we look, we're going to see three things. The first thing we see is that we need to be a church that fights for unity. Let me read. This is a short passage. I'm going to read just these three verses once again. We come to the church in Antioch. Verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping in the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. A few years ago, my wife Lindsay and I had been leading a parish for several years here at Sojourn. Um, and uh, it was a pretty diverse 
parish in terms of life stage, professions, passions, personalities. We were all kind of really different type of people. And at one, in the middle of one of our parish gatherings, we, I think, had had a time of prayer or something. Uh, and one of the older members of our parish, I think she's in her 60s, just kind of paused and said, isn't it neat that the only thing holding us together is the gospel of Jesus? Otherwise, there would be no reason for us to get along. We were so different, coming from such different kind of backgrounds, pursuits, passions, political convictions, all kinds of things. There was no reason for us to be together outside of the gospel of Jesus. And there was kind of a moment where we realized, should we like one another? Um, But it was a beautiful moment because it's absolutely true. We were all over the map. The only reasonable explanation for our unity and our love for one another in that wonderful and beautiful community that we enjoyed is the gospel of Jesus. It was beautiful. It was kind of an act moment, I think. Uh, But it was really only a small taste of what's going on in our passage. Here we come to this scene in the church in Antioch. Antioch is in Syria. Uh, It's in between Israel and Greece, one of the largest cities in the region in the first century. It was a Gentile region, but it also, Antioch as a city, uh, was one of the largest cities. But it was was a Gentile city, but it had also a large kind of wealthy uh, 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 Jewish community, thriving Jewish community. And we're told in Acts chapter 11 that both Jews and Greeks were coming to faith in Antioch. And this was a unique thing. At first... Followers of Jesus were predominantly Jewish, and the gospel of Jesus as Messiah, who had come, was primarily preached in Jewish synagogues. In Acts chapter 10, however, we see that the Holy Spirit had fallen on the Gentiles in line with the ministry of the apostle Peter. And and here in Antioch, this is the first time in Acts that we see Jews and Gentiles actually coming to faith together in the same place and joining and worshiping in the same church community. It's so unique, in fact, that the Jerusalem church, this mega church, home church of the gospel that saw Peter preach at Pentecost and saw 3,000 people come to faith in a day, Jerusalem was kind of like the, the sending, the main hub church for the ancient church, sent Barnabas to figure out what was going on in Antioch because it sounded pretty crazy. Barnabas saw when he got there what God was doing and he was encouraged and he joined in. And so there were lots of new believers, which brought with that new complexities. There were prophets coming and going. There's just a lot going on in this church in Antioch. When we come to the passage that we're at today in Acts chapter 13, this is a really pivotal time for the church. This is, in many ways, a turning point in the book of Acts, which is focused on Jerusalem and the apostle Peter up to this point, and then shifts from here forward to focus on the apostle Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. It's not a black and white kind of binary, but that's the the clear focus of Acts shifts here at this point in the book. And this scene that we're looking at is the scene where they decide for the first time on purpose to send the first church-based foreign missionaries. And the first thing that strikes us is the diversity of this group. Right there in verse 1. Look at the five leaders we're introduced to. Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This is probably one of those details that we tend to read right past as modern day Christians, like the genealogies found throughout the Bible. But it's astounding when we pause and actually look at who's here to wonder whose idea was it to put these people together. Let's start with Barnabas. We're not sure why Barnabas and Paul come first and last. We're not sure about the order of why Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, put them in this order. Perhaps he ordered them in in, in order of their arrival into or prominence in the church. 
We don't know for certain, but we do know that Barnabas was one of the earliest believers. We meet Barnabas back in Acts chapter four, where we learn that his true name is Joseph, but they give him the nickname Barnabas. Thus Joseph is what it says, who was also called by the, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, who sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is where we meet Barnabas in Acts chapter four. He was a Hebraic Jew, a Levite, and he sold a field and brought the money from that field to the apostles. This is a description of the early church community sharing everything that they had as any of them had need. Barnabas is one of the earliest believers, um, and he was the one, you know, being the one sent back in Acts chapter 11 to figure out what was going on in crazy Antioch, Barnabas clearly enjoyed the trust of the apostles. So he was a prominent figure in the early church. So you have Barnabas, then you come to Saul. Saul is also a Jew from Tarsus, and we meet Saul at the end of Acts chapter 7. If you, you might be familiar with the story. In Acts 7, we come to Stephen, this wonderful, loving, faithful disciple Stephen, who is stoned to death on account of his faith. And who is there at his stoning, overseeing it and approving it? This is where we meet Saul. Acts chapter eight, verse one, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Saul is there overseeing the killing of Stephen. And from there, Saul launches into this campaign of heavy persecution such that he becomes well-known in the church. In Acts chapter 9, we're told about the conversion of Saul, uh, the arrival of Saul into following Jesus. We're told that the Holy Spirit approaches one of the disciples named Ananias to come to Saul and to lay hands on him and pray for him that his sight may be healed. As a part of his conversion experience, he lost his eyesight. And Ananias' response, this tells us how the Apostle Paul at that time was thought of, Ananias' response was, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So this is Saul. To borrow an idea I heard from a talk I heard recently on this passage given by Matt Chandler, this is conjecture and not based explicitly in scripture. But you'd be hard pressed to convince me that Barnabas would not have known about Saul. Again, this is conjecture. It's not given in scripture, but you'd be hard pressed to convince me that Barnabas wouldn't have known about Saul. At this time, the church is very small, right? It's a small sect within Judaism. It's only beginning to reach the Gentiles in a wider geographic area. And Barnabas was one of the earliest believers. And here is Saul, the best known persecutor of Christians, kicking down doors, dragging believers off to prison, overseeing their executions. Some of these people would have been Barnabas's friends maybe even relatives. And so today, or so in this passage, we see that they're here together in the same group. In today's wisdom, we might look at two people and say, you know what, these guys have a past. Let's put them in two different groups. That's just Barnabas and Saul. From there, we come to Simeon, who's called Niger. We don't know his origin, but Niger is the Latin word for black, so we can be pretty confident that he's African. 
Perhaps he came from Cyrene like Lucius or somewhere else in North, North Africa. So that's Simeon. We come to Lucius, who is certainly from Africa. Cyrene is a Roman province in modern-day Libya along the northern coast of Africa. So there's Lucius. And then we come to Menaean, who we're told was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So to pause here for a minute, the word translated lifelong friend is really a word that means childhood friend. They grew up together, suckled as a baby by the same nurse is what the, what the phrase means. He was, you know, very close with the Herods. And the Herods were awful. There's several of them, and it doesn't matter which one you talk about, they're all bad, right? So Herod, this would have been Herod Antipas, who ruled over Galilee and Perea under Rome. His father, also known as King Herod, is the one who had a personal problem that he decided to solve by killing all of the newborn sons in the land. So that's his dad. The son, Herod Antipas, is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded out of embarrassment and who would have, Pilate would have handed Jesus over to Herod, who then handed him back to Pilate right before his crucifixion. So we have, so this is Herod and this is Menaean, a childhood friend of the Herods. So we have Barnabas, a Jew from Cyprus, Saul, a Jew and a Pharisee, Lucius from Africa, Simeon of unknown origin, but called Niger and Menaean, a family friend of the Herods who might've been a Roman spy. This is everyone who disagrees about everything in our culture all in one, all in one place. You see, something has happened though that changed their hearts that has become more important than all of those differences, that has reconciled their pasts, that has brought them together. You see, we look at this group and we might think, this is the plan? This is the plan for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. This group of people that the world would say have no business being in the same room, much less trying to collaborate for a common mission. This is the group of people that God used. Doesn't seem like a very good plan but it is the plan that took the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is the plan that took the gospel here to Houston. We might look around this room and think this is the plan. This is the plan for God ministering the gospel to our neighbors here in the Heights. Doesn't seem like a very good plan, but something has healed the divisions in the hearts and lives of these disciples in Antioch, something has renewed their hearts, has restructured their value systems, transformed them. And the same something has healed our divisions and renewed our hearts and is working in us to transform us more and more into the tangible expression of unity and harmony for which God created us, for which God established the church. Sojourn, we must be a people that fight for unity. Back in Antioch, it's clear that unity was a battle. The community in Antioch was one of the hotbeds of the debate over circumcision. Antioch was one of the churches where people argued over the inequitable distributions between Jewish and Gentile widows. People in Antioch came from all different backgrounds and they, they came together in harmony. And it wasn't just a matter of saying, you know what, let's just not worry about all of that and think about Jesus. That's not how it happened. There were real issues that needed to be addressed head on and dealt with. Today, in a world in which division is increasingly fierce and normal, in which the devices in our pockets seek to sow division at every waking moment, 
we must fight for harmony. I believe very much that we're in a way that's similar to this moment in Antioch. We are at a pivotal moment for the church today. How are we going to express the unity of the gospel in a complex and crazy moment like ours? It's not complicated, but it's not easy. We must live lives of confession and repentance alongside one another, experiencing the wonderful mercy of God through the gospel together, and it will be a fight. To consider where we are for a moment, listen to what David Brooks, who's a present-day columnist, wrote. He wrote this a couple months ago as an example. He said, think of your 12 closest friends. These are people you vacation with, talk about your problems with, do life with in the most intimate and meaningful ways. Now, imagine if six of those people suddenly took a political or public position you found utterly vile. Now, imagine learning that those six people think that your position is utterly vile. You would suddenly realize that the people you thought you knew best and cared about most had actually been total strangers all along. You would feel disoriented, disturbed, unmoored. Your life would change. This is what has happened over the past six years to millions of American Christians, especially evangelicals. And this is just talking about politics, although that's a big one for a lot of us these days. Regardless of whether it's politics or other things from your personal history, we all have baggage that makes unity and harmony difficult. This is true of every single one of us in this room, but we need not lose heart because this is the work, this is exactly where God will meet us and empower us, applying the gospel to our hearts, applying the gospel to our community, transforming us into the image of Christ and building us together one conversation, one prayer, one relationship at a time. That's the first thing that we see in this passage. We must be a church that fights for unity. Second thing that we see is that we need to be a church that prioritizes dependence. Richard Foster, in a book called Celebration of Discipline, outlines 12 disciplines of the Christian life. And one of those 12 essential disciplines that he focuses on is the discipline of simplicity, uh, which helps one to cultivate a simple understanding of what's most important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a discipline that, it, that, that requires practice. Um, And for Foster, the reason this discipline is so critical for us today is that our world is anything but simple. Because we have, we tend to have an insane, what he calls an insane attachment to things. We value independence, which is often attained by pursuing things like strength, power, wealth, comfort, safety, the latest iPhone. And it permeates even our mythology. The modern hero is the poor boy who becomes rich rather than the Franciscan or even Buddhist ideal of the rich boy who voluntarily becomes poor. It's changed the way that we think about who the hero is. Covetousness we call ambitious. Hoarding we call prudence. Greed we call industry. Our focus is on what we can get and keep for ourselves. And when we come to this prayer meeting in the church in Antioch, it seems like their minds are set on something else something a little bit more simple, a little bit less distracted and multivarious. For one example, Menean, this lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, was a noble, which means that he was likely of considerable means, and he has no doubt had to set this aside to join what John Calvin calls the simple and despised flock of Christ. Menean is just one example of a man who would have had to set aside his life in order to begin following Jesus. 
Something else had become more important than all of that to him. But more important than the sacrifice of money or status is what they're doing. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So this is a group of people who are worshiping, fasting, listening, praying. They were seeking not what they wanted to do, but what God was calling them to do. It's not clear whether this event took place in a congregational worship setting or in a closed room with just the five of them present. Either option is possible. What is clear though, is that this church was in a particular mood of expectancy. And given that they were, given that they were fasting alongside their worship, this would have been a time of intense devotion. In their minds, in other words, they were clearly not the ones in charge. Their job was to wait and listen for instructions. The Spirit was the one that led the church in its mission. As one writer put it, the church did its part. It fasted and prayed, seeking the divine leading in a mode of expectant devotion. And it's in the context of this practice that if you notice in verse 2 there, it says that God spoke to them. The Holy Spirit said... The ESV Study Bible points out something that's really important for us to realize. That at this point, there were, of course, recognized prophets in the church in Antioch. But this is what they point out. Having recognized prophets, excuse me, having recognized prophets as they did at Antioch did not guarantee that the Holy Spirit would speak to them outside of spending extended time in worship, fasting, and prayer. Let me put it this way. You would think that in a church where there's identified prophets that you could just go about your day and then the prophet would stand up and tell you something if you needed to hear it from God. But that's not how they acted. They didn't go around saying, oh, the prophets are going to tell us what we need to hear. They devoted themselves to fasting and prayer and listening because they didn't want to miss the leading and voice of God. How did they hear what the Holy Spirit was saying? They were listening. Taylor talked about this last week a little bit in his sermon. God is always working and God is always speaking. The question for us is, when will we slow down to listen? This kind of prayer is vital. This kind of prayer, this asking and waiting and listening is a practice that reflects that it's not in your wisdom and your strength that you will ultimately be successful. It's all dependent on God doing what only God can do. Prayer and fasting go together several times in the New Testament. Not always, but it seems that when the church was in need of guidance, this was a regular practice, and so they did it. As a side note, Christians are nowhere in the New Testament are Christians called to fast. With that said, there's clear fasts in the Old Testament, and we see in the New Testament, Jesus gives guidance on how to fast in a way that's pleasing to God, and we see the early church practicing fasting. And so there's never a time that the New Testament Christians are commanded to fast. But we see here um, that fasting is seen as an aid or reinforcement to prayer. And so it was regularly practiced. The pattern given here is the same as the pattern given throughout the New Testament. Prayer is often followed by clear activity of the Holy Spirit, which is then clearly followed by mission, missional progress. Prayer, activity of the Spirit, mission. Not necessarily in a causal relationship, but that's the pattern that we see. Um, as we read through the scriptures. The emphasis in this passage is on waiting. They were waiting. They were waiting on guidance from God. It was a reflection of their dependence on God. And this is the second thing we see in this passage. 
We must be a church that prioritizes dependence. And why is this the case? Because there's a battle going on that we cannot see with our eyes. As the Apostle Paul put it, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. It's safe to say that the last 400 years have given us a terrible plausibility structure as evangelicals. The Bible is clear that there are angels and demons and ways that battles are fought and won in the church and in the kingdom of God. And instead, so often, we seem to be scared of sounding too spiritual. But when we look at this church in Antioch, we see them worshiping, fasting, praying, listening for, open to hearing God's voice. And for those of you who are aware of the larger Christian church and some of the controversies, I'm not making a comment here about charismatics and non-charismatics. I'm simply wrestling with what the scriptures are telling us this morning. We value, in Houston, we value being busy, not listening. The disciples are listening for and open to God's leading. If we are to model our life together as a church after what we read in the Bible, we must be unapologetically spiritual. We must be a people who prioritize dependence. And what does this look like? It looks like putting it on the calendar. If you don't calendar time to listen to God, then given the pace of human life and the tendencies of the human heart, it probably won't get done. I was listening to a teacher uh, a couple of years ago named Ruth Haley Barton. She talked about the difference between values and good ideas. She said, a lot of people, you know, you ask a Christian, do you value prayer? What's the answer probably going to be? Yes. But she said, so often it actually sounds, looks more like a good idea in someone's mind than an actual value, because values are things that make it onto your calendar. If you want to know what you value, look at your calendar for the past seven days. Don't look at your budget to determine what you value. Look at your actual expenses. That'll tell you what's important to you. So if we don't calendar time to listen to the God, it's not on our calendars, then we're probably not going to be doing it. And it will seem like a good idea that doesn't get done. So how do we do it? How do we make space to listen to God? It's not complicated. There's two things. We steep ourselves in the word of God and we create space to listen. How do you listen to God? You steep yourself in his word and you make space to listen. We steep ourselves in the word of God. We read it, we meditate on it. We grow in our understanding of its structure, its interpretation and what it says, because as we listen for the voice of God, we need, the, we need help discerning whether what we're hearing is from God, which will always be in line with his word and voices that are not God. So we steep ourselves in scripture and we create space to listen. This takes work. It takes work both to schedule and to guard the time. And it takes work to actually engage it when you have it. You'll watch as the moment you get some time in quiet trying to listen to the Lord, how creative you can be. Man, I've got all of these ideas that I need to write down. There's so many things. Now that I have a quiet moment, I'm going to put a list of things together and a plan together for this or that endeavor. You'll, you'll realize just how creative and how, how wonderful your mind is when you have a moment of quiet as you find yourself doing anything but praying and waiting and listening in silence. But this is okay, it takes practice. I had a pastor in college who talked about meditation on scripture and he said, if you've never meditated on scripture, you know, there's all kinds of ideas about meditation. He said, start with 60 seconds. 
I was in college at the time, and so I'm sitting there. I had never meditated on Scripture. And so I said, okay, I'm going to set aside. I'm going to set a timer for 30 minutes. I'm going to meditate. <laughs> and the pastor said, don't set a timer for an hour. Don't set a timer for five minutes. Set a timer for one minute. Start there. One verse for one minute. Then maybe once you get to practice at that, then you'll, your muscles will be big enough to take on two minutes and so forth. It's okay to start small. In fact, I would say it's important to start small because this muscle is one that the Holy Spirit is delighted to grow in us as our capacity for love of God through his word in that space grows. If you've been to the past few prayer gatherings, you'll notice that we've been sprinkling in moments of silence and quiet. We're trying to practice this even as a community. So first, we must be a church that fights for unity and harmony. Second, we must be a church that prioritizes dependence, that calendars dependence. And third, we must be a church that embraces obedience. We must be a church that embraces obedience. And now as I use the word obedience in a good way, uh, it is, you may not be surprised to hear, a controversial concept. David Brooks, again, wrote another article just this week, which presented a really helpful perspective on the current cultural moment as a clash between two primary ideologies. To state it as simply as I can, on the one hand, you have an ideology that sees a person as deriving their sense of meaning and identity from within him or herself. And on the other hand, you have an ideology that holds to an understanding of identity that comes through the lens of you are not your own. So on the one hand, you have a true, your, your truest identity comes from within, derived primarily through detachment from other things. And on the other hand, you have identity that most truly comes from without, derived primarily through attachment to something without, outside of you. This is very much the air that we're breathing right now. It seems as though the world around us is moving increasingly in the direction of an internally derived sense of meaning and identity. And that makes things really complicated when people arrive at different conclusions about what our identities should be. Which means that talking about obedience to something outside of ourselves is controversial in today's world, much less inside our own minds and souls. But when I talk about obedience, when I use that word here, I don't have in mind the kind of legalistic obedience out of fear of punishment, the just listen or else kind of obedience that a tyrant would demand of his followers. Here I'm thinking about what the Bible calls the obedience of faith. Trust that the Lord is good always and that his word is not merely worth hearing and considering, but also doing. In that sense, perhaps rather than obedience, which is a word that I would like to reclaim as a good thing, but perhaps due to how things currently are, it, better be used to, it would be better to use the word trust. We must be a church that embraces and demonstrates trust. When God speaks to the five in our passage, what did they do? They responded in faith and trust that what God was saying was best for them. At this point, it's important to pause and notice what the call was and how drastic it was. Uh, so verse three, we see, excuse me, verse two, it says, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So Antioch is a young church going through the ringer, so to speak, right? It's a two-year-old church plant working through unity and diversity, wrestling through disagreements and divisions. And the Holy Spirit says, set apart 
for me, Paul and Barnabas, and send them out. Paul was perhaps the greatest expositor of the gospel in the early church, and he basically oozed the power of God. If he was too busy to make a hospital visit, he would say, here, take my handkerchief, this will work. Right, this is the apostle Paul, one of the, probably the most spirit-empowered, kind of tangibly spirit-empowered leader in the church at Antioch. And then Barnabas was the great encourager. His nickname literally meant son of encouragement. He was one of those people for whom it seems their only job in life was to walk around and make sure that your cup is full always with a word of encouragement, right? The, the kind of person that every person, especially every pastor in today's world needs, right? So the Holy Spirit says, yes, these two, send them away. The most empowered leader, the number one encourager. And I don't know about you, but if I'm back there in this two-year-old hectic, disorganized church plant, I would probably say, are you, are you sure? Do we hear that right? I think Lucius would be a great option for this call. How about Menaean? Menaean would be great. Get him. He's a spy. Excuse me. He would be great for the ministry. Get him out of here. What kind of church sends its key leaders at a vulnerable time? What kind of company thinks it's a good idea to send its up-and-coming CEO to work at another startup? But these disciples are clearly not listening to the wisdom of the world or relying on what their eyes can see. They have seen the risen Christ. They know that God can do amazing things through seemingly desperate circumstances and that God's plan is always best. And so they listen to the spirit and they respond to him with faith and trust. Furthermore, the success of the ministry they were going to set aside Paul and Barnabas for was anything but given outside of God's clear calling and empowerment. The ministry that Paul and Barnabas was being called to, or were being called to was an extraordinary ministry. They were to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Like I mentioned earlier, this is a transition point in the book of Acts. Not a complete shift of focus, but a clear shift in primary focus from Peter and the Jews to Paul and the Gentiles. Jesus had said in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, his final words to his disciples before his ascension, we talked about this a few weeks ago, were this. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. At this point, we've seen the disciples and apostles be witnesses in Jerusalem. We've seen them be witnesses in all Judea and Samaria. And here at Antioch, we see the beginnings of a ministry to the end of the earth, to the rest of the world, both in a geographic sense, outside of what would have been thought of as Jewish territory, and in a religious sense, outside of the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. The gospel of Jesus being the plan for the whole world has always been the case. This is clear throughout the Old Testament. It's clear in the teachings of Jesus. The gospel is going to come to the Gentiles eventually. But here at Antioch, they're experiencing it in real time, very much for the first time. It's complicated, it's messy. And they're being told to send Paul and Barnabas to go and continue this work of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. It was a new work. And this is, this is actually the first deliberate church-based overseas missionary work in the New Testament. There's no precedent for it. And as we read in the book of Acts, we see that this ministry is exceedingly fruitful. And how did it all come to pass? because God has clearly been working this whole time, building his church. As a fun side note, you know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, 
a detail in one of those scriptures that I read a moment ago is, do you know why the church at Antioch exists in the first place? This may be the first church that Saul, whose Roman name was Paul, uh, this is maybe the first church that Paul planted entirely by accident. Why are Christians in Antioch? Because Saul oversaw great persecution in Jerusalem and the surrounding region, and the Christians fled and settled in places like Antioch. And here Paul is in the midst of a church that he planted by accident before he was saved, leaning in and depending on God, knowing and trusting that God's plans are far greater than his. It's a fun little detail. This was a group of people who trusted not in what their eye could see, but in the word that God had given them. And so when we consider sojourn, the task that God has set up before us, there are things that we will be called to that will seem to us to be bad ideas. We will be called to things that seem like bad ideas. And the thing is, we might be right if left to ourselves. But the thing is, the Bible is full of stories that if they had been left to people themselves, they would have failed. But because God was in them, God used it to flip on its head the ways of the world. The Bible is full of stories like this that all basically paint a picture of the reason why the Proverbs tell us to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understandings. In all our ways acknowledge him and he will make our path straight. The unity that this church enjoys is an otherworldly unity. It comes from without. The unity of Jew and Gentile was not a good idea, according to the wisdom of man. The decision itself here was an otherworldly decision. The decision to send out the church's most empowered leader and best encourager would not have been a good idea, according to the wisdom of man. But in case anyone wondered whether sending gifted people weakened the original church, here, we see that that is clearly not the case. God poured out his grace upon the church at Antioch as they continued to be obedient in sending missionary after missionary to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So when we consider the kind of church that we want to be sojourn, we must be a church that fights for unity and harmony. We must be a church that prioritizes dependence. And we must be a church that embraces obedience and trust that takes God at his word, that he will be faithful when we walk in light of his commands. I remember coming away from Taylor's sermon last week, which I encourage you to listen to on the podcast if you missed it. Um, his main point was that God goes for the one. The passage is from Acts chapter 8 with Philip, the, the disciple Philip, being sent to, to basically interpret the gospel for the Ethiopian eunuch. It's a beautiful story. And as I came away from Taylor's sermon, I was grateful to be looking forward to preaching this passage this week because the question we come away from last week is what kind of church is able to truly do what Taylor said last week? What kind of church is truly able to go for the one regardless of who that one is? It's easy to think about a group of people who might go recruit and attract people who are just like them. But what kind of church is the kind of church that truly goes and extends the, God, the hospitality of God to the one regardless of who they are? A church that is fighting for unity and harmony. A church that is prioritizing dependence, listening for God's leadership. A church that embraces trust and obedience even when it doesn't make sense to us. 
It's just a really powerful scene uh, in The Chosen. I think I've referred to it a few times. It's a TV show about the life and ministry of Jesus. In the first season, there's this early episode where uh, the early disciples are called. And there's this really powerful scene when Matthew, the tax collector, is called. Have any of you seen The Chosen yet? I see a number of nods. Some people have, some people haven't. I recommend it. It's the best one I've found. Um, I think it's a really, really thoughtfully crafted show, pairing kind of imaginative detail with solid theology and cultural study. And there's this scene where the Matthew, the tax collector, is welcomed, and the TV show does a really good job of painting how hated tax collectors were. They were repulsive human beings to Jews. And Matthew himself was a very socially awkward, I think he's portrayed as an autistic man, very socially awkward, detail-oriented, painstakingly. It's, you know, you read the Gospel of Matthew and you, you know, it's very clear, structured, concise. It kind of, they, they, I think they do a good job of portraying Matthew. But there's this incredible scene, like it's a, actually a series of scenes where Jesus invites Matthew and has to keep reminding the disciples that Matthew's one of them. And then slowly, one by one, you see one of the disciples. I think Mary is the first person who says, no, he's, come on, she's the one who invites Matthew along. And then the other disciples slowly catch on and realize, okay, I guess he is one of us. It's an incredibly powerful scene of the outsider being made an insider in the family of God. Which makes you wonder what is going on in this community that would cause this otherworldly unity to happen. Well, the early disciples were a group that were fighting for unity. They were arguing nonstop about what it meant to be together in following Jesus. They were a group that was clearly dependent on Jesus. People came up to the disciples and said, hey, how long are you going to be here? And they said, we don't know. We're here until he leaves. They were following Jesus, dependent upon his leadership, and they obeyed what Jesus told them. Not perfectly. It's another one of the details that I love about the TV show as it pointed, but not perfectly, but they, they sought to obey everything that Jesus said. Sojourn, all of us need Jesus' continued work in our lives. If you have come to know Jesus, if you're in here and you know Jesus, you were brought from somewhere to here. You were brought, as the Apostle Paul puts it, from darkness into marvelous light. There remains darkness in your life and in your soul that needs to be dealt with by Jesus. There is no one else for whom that's not true in this room. All of us have been touched by, transformed by Jesus. All of us need Jesus' continued work. And there's a real way in which the hospitality, this welcoming spirit that we are called to demonstrate for the world around us must be experienced in order to fully understand it. The mercy of God must be experienced in order to fully understand it. To the one who isn't a Christian, God sending his son to die for us might sound akin to divine child abuse. To the one who has received the merciful washing of the blood of Jesus, the giving of the son is the most beautiful act of generosity and mercy that has ever been heard of. When we experience the mercy of God, the hospitality of God through the church, we begin to demonstrate a new kind of humanity, a new humanity that shows the world what love and generosity looks like, what mercy and grace look like, 
what open-handed joy looks like, what real life and meaning look like. It's not found in dividing people between the unimpeachably good and the irredeemably bad. It's about seeing the rest of the world through new eyes with a level playing field, knowing that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that we have a way to redemption, transformation, and union with God through Jesus who came to bring us the truth of the gospel. Sojourn, we are this kind of people. We get to be this kind of people, and God is making us into this kind of people. We are at a crossroads of sorts. In a culture that is experiencing increasing polarization, both outside the church and inside the church, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond to things seeming like they're going crazy around us and even within us? Let's devote ourselves to prayer. Let's make space in our lives to listen to God. Perhaps if the Lord calls you to it, even fast while praying, grab someone in your parish and join in a fast for a meal or two to pray and ask the Lord for guidance and leading and for his grace. Pray for your parish to be the kind of place where everyone, especially those who feel like outsiders, are regularly reminded and experience that they belong in this church. This is what God is doing in the world. This is the church, a diverse people united not by nationality, by race, by ethnicity, by profession, by gender, not by age and stage, not by any of those things, but united simply by Jesus and the gospel as it's applied by the Spirit of God for the glory of the Father. So Sojourn, may it be so for us as a church. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you and we're so grateful for your word. Thank you for this brief excerpt from Acts chapter 13, where we get a window into the early church. Some of the first believers who experienced the mercy of God through the gospel of Jesus and watched as it was fleshed out in the engrafting of the Gentiles. Thank you for this picture, Lord. I pray that as we saw in this passage, that we would be a church that you build into a church that fights for harmony and unity, that we would be a church that prioritizes, that calendars dependence, that is unapologetically spiritual and dependence upon you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to embrace trust and obedience. Trusting not in what our eyes can see or what our minds can conceive, but trusting in your word and your leadership and your guidance, that your plan is better than ours. We are so grateful, Lord. I'm so grateful um, that my plan is not the one that will come to pass. So grateful that yours is the one that is coming to pass that will come to pass ultimately. And so pray that you'd bind us together as a unified, dependent, and obedient people for your glory, for the good of our neighbors. In Christ's name, amen.